welcome to the audio newsletter for the Northwestern Program in Sound Arts and Industries. I'm Brad West. In this podcast, we showcase the audio being created by students at Northwestern. This past spring quarter, we offered a pilot version of a new course, Communicating Sound Science with Sound Media, in which students learn how to use sound design to present topics in sound science so that they are accessible to a wide audience. The course was taught by Professor Stephen Moore, with lectures on story structure and sound science research by Neil Verma and Nina Kraus. Today we present three abridged final projects from the course. In our first segment, radio television film junior Azad Saeed takes us on a journey of auditory discovery in which sound art morphs into sound science. I think it's interesting for music to be connected to something other than music. I think any situation where art can be used to demonstrate scientific concepts, I think that's actually extremely interesting. That's Dr. Chris Mercer. He's a professor of music technology at Northwestern University. He seemed to have a unique attachment to music, so I went to his website to see where he was coming from. That's when I heard this. Chris's work has always been very different than most electronic music. Chris creates art using concepts rather than melodies. For example, in 2004, he released a piece called A Snowball's Chance. Rather than being an addition to the Christmas repertoire, the piece explores the idea of a sound snowballing out of hand, collecting other sounds as it rolls down an auditory landscape. Well, I do have pieces that are for homemade instruments or extended techniques, meaning you take old instruments and you play them in strange ways, so uh, or novel ways. Um, so I do have um, those two sides of my work. While Chris's electronic music serves as a playground for the eclectic listener, in 2008, Chris began to compose music that would reach a new audience, but it wasn't the one that he was expecting. It started really as a big computer music piece that was going to be about mammal vocalization generally. The title of it now is Echoes of Lemurs. And it was in the middle of that project that I got deep into the research side. So it started with me just trying to find sound files. So I started looking for primate vocalizations. I came across lemur recordings from the Lemur Center at Duke University. And they were, to my ear, by far the most interesting of the primate vocalizations I could find. So I used those recordings to finish that first piece, which was about a 22-minute five-channel composition. During his second project at Duke, he met Joe Macedonia, who would give him the tools to discover something truly great about evolution. So Joe Macedonia had done an article with a woman named Catherine Stenger that created a phylogeny based entirely on communication evidence, mostly vocalizations. So phylogeny is a set of genetic relationships. You can show which species are closely related to other species. It's a tree diagram that demonstrates all of that. My idea was to take that tree diagram and demonstrated in sound. Chris completed the audible phylogeny of lemurs in 2012. At his completion, he came across an astounding observation. 
So you can see that these two species that split off from each other 30 million years ago have an almost identical vocalization in the same context of emission today. That's pretty amazing. And the vocalization phylogeny bears it out. These animals, they're 30 million years separated, but they sound the same, at least in certain contexts. So you don't know what the common ancestor actually sounded like, but you're hearing some echo, some ghost of a common ancestor between these two species that lived 30 million years ago. I think that's very compelling. For someone who's not really sure what to do with their love of music, their creative bones or sensibilities or whatever, having the chance to witness music become something more than just itself, to witness music become a tool to see and learn is really encouraging. And after charting out this exploration, I think music will be the way that I choose to tune in to the world. Next, we'll hear from radio television film junior Ryan Lommers, whose project allows us to hear some of the beauty and complexity of tonal languages. If I ask you a question, what does my voice do? How do you know it's a question? In English and most Germanic and Romance languages, we use a general rise in tone to indicate a question. But what if that's not all we did with tone? What if the meaning of everything we said depended not only on the words themselves and the order in which we say them, but also how we pitch every syllable? There are languages that do this. They're called tonal languages, and one of them is the most widely spoken language in the world. All Chinese characters are tonal. That's Missy Chen, a first-year journalism student at Northwestern University. She grew up in Beijing, and she's one of the roughly 1.2 billion Chinese speakers in the world. So there are four tones, and then it's like, ah, 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 ah. Wait a minute, hang on. So there are four tones, and then it's like, ah, 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 ah. If you're a native English speaker, or a speaker of any non-tonal language for that matter, there's a very good chance those four things all sounded, well, basically the same to you. This is perhaps the greatest hurdle faced by anyone attempting to learn a tonal language. The most difficult part for native English speakers is the tones. Chen Hong Chang is a Chinese professor at Northwestern University. She grew up in Taiwan and has been teaching at the university for the past four years. She told me that maybe the easiest way to demonstrate the four-tone system is with one syllable with ma, ma. So we can do ma first the first tone, and then ma, rising, and then the lower tone, ma, and the fourth tone going down, ma. So maybe you hear the difference now, but here's the catch. So basically with each tone, if the tone is different, it means like different characters, and then it represents like different meanings. That's right. Each of Professor Chang's pronunciations of ma, ma mean completely different things. But for the Chinese, Mandarin's four tones are just the beginning step. In China, there's like more than 
I don't know how many local dialects, and everyone speak their own tonal languages. Sylvia Lam is a PhD student in the Communication Sciences and Disorders Department at Northwestern University. I speak Mandarin as well as Cantonese.、Uh, Cantonese is my mother tongue. So in Cantonese, actually we have six tones. And what happens is so difficult for people who speak Mandarin try to learn Cantonese. The reason is because they are so used to four tones, so their brain is tuned to learn that four frequencies. But then when they try to learn the Cantonese, their brain has not wired to listen to these different pitches because they can't even tell the differences of different tones. Well, for me, it's like I can't, I can't even understand Cantonese. It's just so exotic that. I just literally can't understand. You could say they are different languages. The Chinese language family is is pretty special, I would say, because in the southern area there are tons of different dialects. They don't understand each other at all. So how different do some of these dialects sound to the untrained ear? Well, as it turns out, fairly different. So I would just say I'm Taiwanese. I'm from Taiwan. Guashi Taiwan Lang, and if I say it in Mandarin, it's 我是台湾人 So if non-tonal language speakers and tonal language speakers both have trouble learning tonal languages, what is it that makes this kind of language so difficult to learn? Turns out it has to do a lot with what Sylvia was saying before about the way our brains latch onto certain pitches. In someone who speaks a tonal language already, their brain has been trained to latch on to the particular tones and pitches of their language. If you don't know a tonal language, you have to start completely from scratch. Sylvia explained a study in which the researchers basically just like played a sound, like speech sound, like ba ga da, and see how an individual perceives the sound differently. If you Look at the brain waves of autonomous speakers; they are actually picking the pitch really nicely. So, if you say a sentence or singing, you can see that they are checking the pitch compared to non-tonal speakers. This starts to open the door to a whole other set of questions. Does this tracking of pitch also relate to music? Why did tonal languages develop in the parts of the world that they did? Did they develop in those regions because the people who lived there were already better at tracking pitches? But these are questions that should perhaps just be saved for another segment. Communication Sciences and Disorders Junior Michaela Ritz is also interested in sound and learning. In our final segment, her project explores the role of brain plasticity in processing sound. We never hear the same song twice. Whether or not you're aware of it, your hearing is changing all the time as your brain adapts to your environment. So right now, the physical structure of your auditory system is different than it has been at any other time in your life. Does that sound crazy to you? Our brains are built for change and have enormous power to build themselves for the things we encounter often. Neuroplasticity is the brain's ability to change based on the environment we live in and the way we behave. We see neuroplasticity when we learn new skills, like playing a musical instrument. The motions start out feeling awkward, but after a few days of practice, your fingers get used to the way they're supposed to move. Your brain uses this practice to tell your fingers where to go. 
When you do something over and over again, your brain realizes that it must be important, and it changes to make that task easier. The same process happens in hearing. The way that we perceive sound changes constantly based on our environment and the things that we listen to, which means that something that sounds like this to you might sound more like this to me or to your mom or to your next door neighbor. That means the world sounds different to you than it does to anybody else. And not only that, that means that we can change our hearing, kind of like we can change our skill to play a musical instrument. And this is a topic that really excites a lot of researchers at Northwestern University. Think about it. If we knew more about how this process works, then we could do a better job of helping people with hearing loss, helping musicians or people learning other languages, and even people with normal hearing who just want to get a little bit better. But to get this kind of improvement, you have to practice. I'm David Little. I'm a PhD graduate student, and uh, the lab I'm in, we look at how we can improve our ability to process sound across time. Um, but sort of the long-term goals are about the ability to help someone with a hearing aid or a learning disability, and how can you train them to have a better life awesome. in their sound processing. So basically in this experiment, you're just going to be listening for two tones in each trial. One of them is going to be higher than the other one, and um, your job is to choose the higher tone. Alright. In experiments like this one, participants come into the lab two days in a row, so researchers can see whether or not they improve on the task. And uh, you can train people to do that better and better, so they can tell a smaller and smaller difference between those two sounds than when they started. So you can sort of improve the resolution of your frequency hearing. So a stimulus that might sound more like this before training may be perceived more like this after several training sessions. Even though the tones themselves don't change, the difference in perception is very real. Now, the stimuli in these experiments are often very different from human speech. So why do we care about these weird beeps and tones? The idea is that you're sort of improving your resolution across maybe many dimensions in some actual real-world task. And so if we can kind of break that down to, well, like, let's just look at this one simple thing, maybe we can understand something about that that will help us learn something about how you process speech or how you process music or so forth. So we all perceive the world differently, and our personal perceptions are changing all the time. And scientists and clinicians are using this fact to create programs that help us improve. And honestly, that sounds pretty exciting to me. Communicating sound science with sound media is a microcosm of the unique interdisciplinary curriculum offered at Northwestern's MA in Sound Arts and Industries. Our program is still accepting applications for fall admission, so if this interests you and you'd like to learn more, please check out our website at sound.northwestern.edu, email sound at northwestern.edu with any questions, or look for us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the audio newsletter of Northwestern University's MA program in Sound Arts and Industries. Today's episode, Exploring Sound Science with Sound, featured abridged and edited work from original projects by Ryan Lommers, Michaela Ritz, and Azad Said, with original music by Brendan Baker. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching Northwestern Sound to learn about how sound works at Northwestern. Northwestern.